right. Trinity Church, how are you doing today? That's awesome. I'm glad to see you. You sound great. Can we thank the worship team? What a great job they do. And just leading us so well week in and week out. And their whole purpose, their whole goal is to really help you and I be preoccupied with Jesus. And uh, they've done a great job of that today. And that's really what this passage that we're going to be looking at today is all about, is really this focal point, not only on Jesus, but on Jesus making this move to create a way for us to be right with the living God. So we have so much to look forward to today in what we're looking at. You join us today in the third week of a new series looking through John chapters 11 and 12, and we're just kind of looking at a piece each week, and you're seeing this in the video and in just kind of maybe your notes and whatnot, this idea of death and life. And the idea that we're seeing is people transferring from death into life as they put their hope and faith in Jesus. And today we're going to see this wonderful example of Mary doing exactly that. So if you have a Bible today, if you want to find your way to John chapter 11, or I'm sorry, 12, and uh, be right there at the beginning, we'll dive in in just a moment. Uh, my name is Todd Arnett, I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church, an incredible pleasure to get to be with you on this gorgeous mid-October day. I appreciated that when Jared said that earlier today. It is amazing how this year is flying by, and especially in this fall season. So we're really glad that you're here with us today, again, in the room, out in the pavilion, and those watching online. Well, before we jump in, let me give you an announcement about something. The elders have been working on multiple things, and they want to be able to have some dialogue. That's actually one of the biggest things that we've been working on is creating more opportunities for dialogue with the Trinity Church family. So next Sunday, we have a town hall meeting from three to five in the afternoon. That's going to be held over in M104105, so on the west side of the campus. And we'd love for you to join us. We're going to look at a few different topics. Some of the things that we're working on right now are some possible constitutional revisions, we're working on some governance issues with the way that we conduct ourselves, working on this idea of communication and creating more avenues for that. And just in general, what does unity look like at Trinity Church? Those will be some of the topics that will be on, on discussion. And our whole hope is to have you come and interact with us about those things. And we'd love to be able to fill in blanks if there's questions that you have or just hearing in general some presentation points from the elders. So that'll be next Sunday, the 24th from three to five over in M104-105. I want to invite you to be a part of that. Well, today, here we are. We're, we're jumping into John 12, and what we've seen powerfully in chapter 11 has been Bill started us a couple weeks ago with this amazing miracle. Lazarus, four days dead, is brought back from the dead. Jesus calls him out, and people are rightly so blown away. Don't know what to do with that don't know how to even have a category for that. No one has ever done this before. On the heels of that, though, what we saw is that miracles often have a way of being uh, polarizing, where some were flocking to Jesus in belief and saying, we don't know who you are, but we want to know you. We want to believe you. And then others going, you know what? There's something wrong with this guy. <laughs> and even in particular, we saw last week in this really powerful just exposure of motives and attitudes, we've got to stop him. And so what we saw in these two weeks just kind of back to back was this amazing supernatural otherworldly miracle right back to we've got to stop him. And the only way to do that is to take his life. So we are seeing these death and life conversations, death and life actions and behaviors in this part, this middle part of the Gospel of John. And today we transition to this powerful idea of what Jesus is now going to do as he's making his march. One of the things we'll see again clearly today, Jesus, all throughout John's Gospel, what's been kind of surfaced time and time again is Jesus' sense of timing. It is not yet my time, is a phrase that he has said numerous times in this gospel. And what we're seeing laying out is that Jesus does, though, have a strategic, intentional time, and we're beginning to turn the corner into that. Where we left off last at the end of John 11 was Jesus and his disciples kind of retreating out to a, an away place, Ephraim, to be kind of out of the spotlight for the season as the, the religious leaders are looking for a way to take his life. 
And now what we're going to see is an intentionality to start making his way towards Jerusalem. Today, what we want to be careful to do, and I was praying a lot about that this week, it would be easy today to put Mary in the spotlight, to look at her amazing offering, her amazing sacrifice, her expression of really abject love and gratitude. But the interesting thing is that we don't want to lose focus on that would have been the worst thing that Mary would have ever wanted because her whole point of what she did was to put the spotlight on Jesus. So that's what we're going to do today as we look at John chapter 12, these first few verses, is that keeping Jesus center. And what was powerful about what Mary did, we're going to look today, it was an incredibly extravagant offering. But the interesting thing is, is that for many of you and your commitment and your following of Jesus, you have done things, offered up things that even on a level of value and worth are even of greater consequence than what Mary did in John chapter 12. What we're going to see is, and you doing that and your desire to want to follow Jesus, we're going to see that I want to acknowledge some of that in the room today, that there have been these expressions of saying, Jesus, it's, it's not this sense of even sacrifice because I'm giving to you. But what I also want to see is what Mary did was very unique, a one-of-a-kind, one-of-a-time opportunity to prepare Jesus for what he was going to, not just to Jerusalem, but to the cross. So we dive in today, and you'll note today, if you're here with us often, you're like, what is going on? Todd doesn't have three points, and then now what? Crazy world today. I know the world is shifting off its axis, but um, we're going to dive in. Let me give you a little bit of a reminder of even how John in John 11 actually gave us a pre kind of idea as to who the Mary was. He was talking about the sister of Lazarus. It said this in John 11. Now, this Mary was the same one who poured out perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That didn't even happen yet in John's accounting of this chron chronology of Jesus's movement towards Jerusalem, but he's kind of seeding that thought and now today, he's going to give the expression. The interesting thing about this narrative is that through most of our time looking at John's gospel, we have only looked at material that was primarily in John. Matthew, Mark, Luke are often called the synoptic gospels, meaning they have so much in common. They're telling very similar accounts. And what's powerful about that is that we're hearing through three different lenses the same story. It gives great credibility to the fact that Jesus did, in fact, do these things Jesus did, in fact, say these things, but John, he writes his gospel much later, his account of Jesus's life, and we've heard time and time again, his intentionality is very concise. I want you to believe that Jesus, these things I'm writing about are so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. And so John gives accounts of what Jesus did often that are not found in the other gospels, so it kind of brings this fourth lens that gives a lot of what we might call new material or material not covered in the other three. But this one today, this narrative is actually going to be found very similarly in Mark, um, Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14. And so within those two accounts, what we're going to see is these three lenses on the same narrative of Mary in this incredible posture of worship to Jesus. By the time we're done today, I want to finish with the worship team leading you in a song that I really believe is the kind that Mary might have been singing, might have been humming while she was wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, so it helps us with timing to know when this is happening, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. The last time Jesus was in town... That's exactly what he was doing. He had come to town, quote, late. Remember, God's timing is never late, but it looked late to everybody else. He comes late. Lazarus is four days dead. Um, Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, come out to him and say, Jesus, if you would have been here, we've seen you heal people time and time again. You could have healed our brother, but now they're thinking that time has passed. He's missed it. But Jesus, in his absolute perfect timing, says, roll away the stone, and he calls Lazarus to come out. So this is the last time that he's been in town, and all the awe and the faith and the belief that was placed in him as a result of what had happened. 
And now he's returned back to town and we see six days before the Passover. This is the final week of Jesus's public ministry. So we see that he comes and he not only comes to Bethany, but he's going to spend time with these friends. I want you to think about, we left off at the end of John 11, like I said, Jesus and his disciples out in Ephraim, out in the countryside, away from the spotlight. We don't have an exact idea of how long he was there, but I want you just for a minute to get into the sandals of Andrew. I want you to get into the sandals of John, this gospel writer. Get in the sandals of Peter for just a moment and think about what was going on out in this time away from the crowds, away from the limelight, away from the intense scrutiny where they could just be together. I think of the meals that they shared. I think of just the conversations they might have had. I think of the memories that they were rehearsing of what these last three years have been like. And I think about what an incredibly sweet time that must have been for each and every one of them. Time that they would later on deeply lean into and be grateful for. We had those days, those weeks with Jesus before we would go to what he was going to do and give his life away. So in that space and in that time, they're out and about, out in this space, and now they're making the approach. Chapter 12, verse 2. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining with him at the table. If there was anyone in Bethany who was going to give a dinner on Jesus' behalf, it makes sense to me it would be the guy he'd raise from the dead. Right, that would just be an incredibly amazing thing. We're going to have a banquet. We're going to have a dinner. And Jesus' honor, I'm here living, breathing today because of what he did. And what's wild is when you think about that, that just makes sense to us. That's who should host the meal. But when you stop and think about it, when throughout Jesus' gospels did people ever come back and say thank you? Remember, it's Jesus who heals the 10 lepers. And they all go bouncing for joy, rightfully so. They were outside of the community. And now that they can be back and they can go back to loved ones and they made sprints to go connect with family members they might not have seen for years. But it's this one, a Samaritan of all, which caught the religious guard off off guard. But it's a Samaritan that comes back and he falls at Jesus' feet and says, thank you. We rarely see people thanking Jesus in ways that he heals them. But in this case, a meal, an honor of Jesus is held. Martha's doing what Martha does. She's preparing the meal. And I want you to see that even a little bit today as we talk. We don't see any type of criticism. We don't see any type of correcting for that. We just see this sense of Martha using Martha's gifts to host and put on this great meal for Jesus, honoring him, thanking him. So grateful to have her brother back. I think about what it would have been like to be at that meal. And I think about if it's one of Jesus' disciples or maybe just a friend, a family friend, and, and you're sitting across the way from a guy who was four days dead. And you're joking with him, and he's eating food, and he's laughing, and he's hugging people, and you're just like, I didn't even know what I would do with that. I was there. I spoke at the funeral. And this guy's walking around like nothing ever happened. That must have done something around the table that day that already starts that, that tone. One of the things we just read in the text in verse 2, it said they were reclining at the table. That's actually really helpful for us because it's important to know that in the first century, they wouldn't have eaten a meal like this. Take a look at the picture. It's a very stock picture about you and your family. When you gather, you'll see multiple generations and some great-looking casserole, right? And that's how we eat, 21st century Southern California. Very normal to us. Take a look at the next slide, though. This is what they would have been gathering around in the first century. You'll note the table maybe a foot and a half off the ground, very low lying. You'll note no high back chair, nothing for your back at all, no back support. You'll note pillows kind of around the back. You'll notice those. 
And you'll notice the food just kind of spread out all throughout. And then more supplies even right there in the middle. Very consistent with the kind of meal that Jesus would have enjoyed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus that day. Take a look at an artist's rendering. This is of another time, but very similar. This is what it would have looked like. And you'll note as people are there, their knees are on pillows or they're leaning on to something and usually kind of leaning on a left arm and eating with a right hand. This would have been very typical of the way that a meal would have happened in that big U-shape kind of idea. You can get people on both sides of the table. Think about how close you are to the person on the other side now. You're not talking about this table that's got four feet across from each other. You're talking about maybe two feet looking square in the eye at someone else. Very intimate setting. Very normal, very typical first century, but very intimate setting to have this meal. And an important thing to note as we look more into the narrative, note that that's why when we think sometimes of this narrative of Jesus and, and Mary coming to his feet is very awkward because we're like, did he scoot his chair back? You know, I mean, how did that whole thing work? No, he's leaning in such a way his feet are behind him, kind of away from the food, which by the way, is really good hygiene in a first century culture, right? You don't want those feet near anything. Verse three, then Mary... Somewhere in the course of the meal, then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. Let's talk about this Mary a little bit to make sure we know which one we're talking about. There's a few Marys in the New Testament. Luke chapter 10 puts it this way. This is a narrative that you might be very well familiar with. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened up her home to him. It'd be the town of Bethany. Now we're reading about in John 12. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. So you hear this incredible, like, she's tattling, tattling to mom. Mom, why didn't Mary come in the kitchen? Come on, what's going on? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things. As soon as you read that, you just want to put your name in there, don't you? <laughs> Todd, Todd, you are worried and upset about many things. You're like, yeah, that's true. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better. It is better to sit at my feet, and it will not be taken away from her. So this is the Mary that we're talking about. Jesus doesn't know her to be lazy. Jesus doesn't know her to be someone who just simply wants out of work. Jesus notices that she wants to soak it all in. Take in his teaching, take in his person, just be right there front and center. Just a chapter ago in John 11, in a conversation she had with Jesus concerned about her brother's death. This is what she says. John eleven thirty two. 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Can I catch you with a little um, thread that goes through all these narratives? His feet. She was sitting at Jesus' feet in Luke. She came and she didn't just have a conversation face to face. She fell at Jesus' feet, John chapter 11. Of the numerous Marys that we find in the New Testament, three are most predominant. One, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Two, Mary Magdalene. We know that name often, and we often associate her with actually another anointing of Jesus found in the Gospel of Luke, I believe very different from what we're reading about today, but a similar reaction and then third, we see this Mary, mother or sister of Martha and sister of Lazarus, and what often commentary writers know her as Mary of Bethany. Right? That makes sense. We saw that earlier today. That's where Jesus is. So we knew her to be a devoted follower of Jesus, who's very much convinced that he must be who he says he is. And, and if there was any doubt in her mind, raising her four-day dead brother sealed it. He's unlike anyone else I've ever met before. I believe he is the anointed, unique son of God. 
So Mary has this deep belief in who Jesus is. And the problem with our reading of this narrative today is that we completely miss what is happening when she stands up with this small bottle, this small container of nard. It doesn't sound expensive, does it? Nard. Rhymes with lard, right? You're just kind of like, huh, okay. And so we miss the idea of what this perfume was and of its value. So let's do a little bit of comparison today to get our mind in the same space because when the people around the table saw what she was doing, they had a reaction because they knew what the value of this substance was where it's lost on us. This um, perfume is, and I only know this, by the way, because of a wonderful thing called the internet, okay? I don't know perfumes well. I just want you to know that. It's commonly also referred to as spike nard, and it primarily comes from India, especially that which, like this, was the most valuable. This is how the, the perfume was made of this plant. Its underground stems are crushed and distilled into an intensely aromatic amber-colored essential oil with a thick consistency that has been used for centuries. It's still used today as a perfume. It's still used today medicinally. It's still used today for religious ceremonies. So spike nard or nard is something that is not just a first century idea. But what people around the table that day would have understood that gets again lost on us is the incredible value. What we're going to find this, this amount that she had, we're going to read just a moment in the narrative, that the value of it was just guesstimated at being worth a year's wages. A year's wages. So let's see if we can make some comparisons. It's again off of the wonderful internet. So Clive Christian, an incredible perfumer, I suppose, right? You know, has this perfume called Number One Imperial Majesty. It was named the world's most expensive perfume. Now, this is a bit dated. 2006 made the Guinness Book of World Records. So 15 years ago, this was worth $2,355 an ounce. $2,355 an ounce. And the wild thing is, the way that it was delivered, it was hand-delivered via a Bentley. <laughs> That's awesome right there. I don't, I don't, who cares what's in the bottle? Just bring that to me in a Bentley. That's pretty sweet. So this is how this perfume was delivered, $2,355 an ounce. Now, you take that and you kind of go, okay, so she had a pint is our kind of understanding of the amount she had. The only way I have a reference point, or the best way I have a reference point, is how much is a pint of anything is the last time I had Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> and it was probably that flavor, right, that I had. So, um, so a pint of ice cream, this is the same uh, amount, okay? So this is the amount of, of perfume that she had, not an ounce, 16 of those. So 16 ounces times $2,355, I think I put the math up on the board. Do you have it up there, Lane? It's $37,680 worth. $37,680 worth of perfume in this small container. I looked it up, the median income in Redlands two years ago, 2019, $33,925. Give or take, that's pretty close. So a perfume in our day might have been worth about $35,000 in this small container. It was what Mary is going to go and approach Jesus with. That would have caught your attention around the table. It definitely would have. You wouldn't have missed that moment. So this is an incredibly extravagant gesture. Here's a question, though, I think is worth asking. Why does Mary have a small container worth $35,000 just laying around the house? I'd like to know that. I'd like to understand. Commentary writers give a few different suggestions. I don't think we can know. One is they would say this actually demonstrates the incredible wealth of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. I tend to think that's actually not it, but that's one suggestion. Another would be that she received this as an inheritance from someone before. We read of three siblings, but no parents. 
and that this was her inheritance that she was to hold on to, very valuable and something she could exchange for something else if need be. Or others would say that she, this was her way of holding on to her life savings. Think first century. Think that there's not a lot of banks that you can just put money on, on request with, deposit. Think that what are the ways that you would hold on to wealth in a small pint-sized container actually makes a lot of sense. We don't know exactly why Mary has $35,000 worth of perfume on her person, but what we do know in just moments from now is she's going to expend it all. That's why this narrative continues to be told today is the extravagance of the gift. I want you to hear, though, one thing that really became apparent to me in my study this week, and I said earlier, as powerful as it is to see what Mary is going to do for Jesus. If Mary were standing here on the stage today, she would say that was surely not the point of anything to do with any extravagance of what I did. The point is, is who received it? And what the purpose of giving this perfume over his body meant. And that's what we want to keep looking at today. Continue in verse 3. She, Mary, poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Let's try to be at this dinner, okay, for just a moment. It's a little harder for you. You're in that typical sit-around-the-table high-back chair. A little easier for me. So imagine table is here, feet are this direction, the meal is all happening in this particular way. Sorry, they didn't have mic cords that could get stuck when you sit down, so I had to switch that. So the meal is happening this way, feet are back here, and imagine as this is going on, imagine Mary stands up, just kind of unannounced, no thing you're expecting, and she's holding a container, it's small, It's probably got some sort of lid or cap on it, so you don't really know exactly what it is, and you can't smell it yet. But imagine when she comes around this side to Jesus, and she's going to do what Mary has done most times we see her in the narrative. She's going to come and sit at Jesus' feet. Now, the other gospel accounts, Matthew chapter 26, Mark 14, They talk about Mary, a pint, right? I had Ben and Jerry's not too long ago. Should have kept the container. It would have been a great prop today. Um, A pint's not so little that you'd think it could only be used in one place. And these other accounts talk about her actually anointing Jesus, in a sense, head to toe. What John focuses on, though, is what she does at Jesus' feet, because John seems to focus on Mary at Jesus' feet throughout. And so imagine Jesus is noting what's happening and maybe rotates away from the meal and now this is happening and Mary is anointing him with this incredibly expensive perfume. It catches the attention of everyone in the room, not just that it's expensive, but the smell. Breathe that in just for a moment. Think of, like for me, I'm weird but uh, my family loved at California Adventure when you're on the, the California soaring ride and the orange blossoms just kind of burst. The dirt, not so fun, but the orange blossoms, wonderful. You just breathe that in. So imagine that this aroma is filling the space. And then imagine Mary on her feet, not just applying perfume to feet, which seems really weird. Jesus may or may not have already had his feet washed coming into the space, but she doesn't just apply perfume to his feet, but she wipes his feet with her hair. I just want you to take that in for just a moment. I want you to take in the questions you'd be asking. What is happening? (laughs) That's what I would have been asking. I would have been asking, does she know what she's doing? This is so weird. There would have been a level of uncomfortableness in this space. It would have had tension in it. And the idea, not only of what Mary was doing, 
But I think about once Mary stepped away. You see, not only had she poured out this expensive perfume all over the person of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, but now Mary aside, imagine, I don't know if she was crying, I don't know if she was smiling, I don't know if she was just incredibly humbled, but imagine hair dripping with perfume and with feet. Got to be honest, that's what was going on. And, and there would have been this part in the room, this moment in the room, where I think every other person could have leaned in and said, something really profound has happened among us today. We weren't just at a meal. And this isn't just a guy who was four days dead. There's something unique that's happening to Jesus right now of utter significance. But as we'll see in just a moment, that moment gets lost. Not between Jesus and Mary, but lost for everyone else around the table. Because the reality is, is that Judas wants to speak up and he wants to say, what an idiot. John 12, 4 and 5. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, he objected. He spoke up in the middle of this. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Think of all the good that could have been done with $35,000. And yet it's just been wasted on Jesus' body. I was thinking about that this weekend. I was thinking about Mary's responses of worship. Twice we read them in the Gospels and twice they're criticized. She comes and sits at Jesus' feet while Martha is buzzing about the kitchen getting preparations made and Martha criticizes Jesus. Tell her to stop it and help me. In this case, she anoints Jesus head to toe, washes his feet with her hair, and Judas cries out, why wasn't this money given to the poor? Maybe there's something to walk away with that. Maybe there's a reminder to us that when we respond to Jesus in extravagant ways, people won't understand. And I just got to tell you, my biggest concern walking away from this passage is that I would not be a Martha or a Judas and say, what an idiot. Get busy rather than just sit there. Use those resources for other things that are more practical because I'm admitting to you that's how my mind works. I want to get busy. I do lots of things for Jesus. I want to use resources and practical ways to do amazing good. But this passage makes me stop and say, God, have I missed not only opportunities myself to extravagantly worship you, but have I judged other people when they did? Dear God, let it not be so. In this case, I don't want to be a Martha and I don't want to be a Judas. I want to simply just take it in and be profoundly impacted? Because here's the wild thing. Guaranteed, Mary didn't once go, oh my gosh, do I know how much this is worth? Oh my gosh, what is this gonna be about the rest of my life? Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening right now that I'm doing this. There was great intent and great joy. And yet it's the Judas around the table that wants to steal that from her. I told you earlier today, not in this same way, because I'll give some distinction in a minute, but there are those of you gathered under this roof, watching online, watching on the pavilion, you're here with us today, and you have made extravagant offerings and sacrifices to God. Maybe it's in the way of encouraging and cheering on your kids and grandkids as they go off to serve Jesus in remote lands, and you don't get to see them for months at a time. That is way more costly than one year's worth of wages. 
Maybe for some of you, and, and those are here, we even prayed this morning for the Pavonis. For Kirk and Joyce, that's exactly what that means. For Daniel's parents, that's exactly what that means. I had a conversation this week, and the opportunity to keep climbing in my career but I look at this God-given sense of priorities related to my family, related to my spouse and my kids, and I realize I can't keep doing that at their expense. So you said no. I'd love to, but no, because they come first. Advancement, that might be worth much more than one year's worth of wages. Some of you have given in amazingly sacrificial ways, financially, through other resources that you didn't have to give but you gave. And in each one of these sequences, there is this sense of, of course. And I want to acknowledge that this giving, this sacrificial attitude, this offering up to Jesus, though it comes at great costs, there is also this great reality of Jesus, you are worth far more than any of this. I acknowledge that and I lay it before you. It's a powerful thing to realize that we have opportunities in this day, 2,000 years later, to give and to offer to God things that to others, right? Those of us in here who have wished well our kids on the mission field, are there others around us who go, why would you ever be happy about that? That's horrible. You don't understand. Not continue to climb the corporate ladder for fear or for a sense of reverence of putting family first. There are colleagues who would go, why would you do that? You don't understand. Offering financially or resource-wise something so extravagant, you don't understand. How could I not? Wiersbe in his commentary talks about these three siblings. He's always a, a great wordsmith. And he notes that all three of them that day did things that we can emulate and model in our own lives. Martha worked. Lazarus witnessed. He was a witness to this incredible work of Jesus. And Mary worshipped. Lastly, before we finish our passage today, fragrances are found all throughout Scripture. Old and New Testament. And they're usually given with great purpose. They don't just smell to smell. But they're given with this sense of fragrance to fill a room or to be an offering, a, a, a good, a smelling, pleasing offering unto God. When our kids hit 18, we wanted to do something special for them and have this event for Jackson, for Aaliyah. Kendi got missed on COVID. We'll have to figure out how to come back to that. But for Jackson, when he turned 18, it was real close to high school graduation. We called it a man party. Lots of mustaches, lots of manly stuff. And we gathered 12 guys who had been influential in his life and just wanted them to speak into his life as he began to get ready to move forward as an adult. And so at that man party, he was given some great gifts. It wasn't intended to be a great gift thing, but just meaningful. And guys shared different reasons behind what they were giving to him. From Joanna and I, as we were talking about it, we thought, I don't know what the best thing to give. I and mean, we could spend lots of time thinking about it, but maybe what would be at least significant, we figured he needed his own smell. Now, we raised a teenage son, he had all kinds of smells, right? <laughs> but a good smell. And so at this man party, we gave him cologne. And we gave him cologne not just to have a smell but to think of these words where God talks about our aroma from 2 Corinthians 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. There's a whole word picture there we don't have time for. And uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Watch. To the one, we are the aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. Would we be a people who smell well? 
and give the fragrance, the aroma of Christ in whatever situation we go into. Some who resist and others who respond. Finally, to wrap up our narrative today, John provides some commentary about Judas's motivation in his heart. Chapter 12, verse 6. He did not say this because he, Judas, cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used it to help himself to what was put into it. And then Jesus corrects Judas and communicates what's going on here. What has been the whole focal point has not been this weird expression of Mary, but what she's doing in preparation for him. Chapter 12, verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I'm not even sure that Mary knew exactly what Mary was doing, meaning she knew she was providing and presenting some very extravagant form of gratitude and awe. But Jesus goes on to say, what she's done for me is actually preparing me to go to the cross. Jesus is going to say in all kinds of ways throughout all the Gospels, this is about to happen. We're six days away from this happening at this point in the narrative. But yet again and again, disciples are going to be dumbfounded when Jesus is hanging on a tree. It's like whatever he said just goes right over their head like that can't be. They were so convinced Jesus was not going to die. But Jesus very calmly says what she's kept hidden, what she's kept guarded this valuable resource she did because she was preparing my body for death. We said it earlier, we've seen all kinds of intentionality throughout John's gospel. Jesus is saying, it's on. I'm setting my face towards Jerusalem and I'm gonna go give my life away. This begins that journey. That's the power of today. That's the focal point of this passage. Not even Mary's extravagance, surely not Judas's criticism, but Jesus saying, I'm with intentionality going to the cross to create once and for all a way for all people of all tribes and all nations to be right with their creator because I'll be the atoning sacrifice for their sin. That's what the rest of John is going to be all about, and I cannot wait to dive in. Last week, we forecasted into this chapter, and this is what we read, the very next verse, verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there in Bethany and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So, we said this last week, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. We got to get rid of that guy too. He's the evidence. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. I heard a song a couple of weeks ago that made me think this is what Mary might have been singing. In the moments while she's anointing Jesus' body and washing his feet with her hair. Words that my hope is they would be our song today as well.
Father God, we want to say thank you, and we are so glad that we've come in contact with you, so glad you sought us out, and these words represent our hearts today. We're so glad we met you. We're so glad that there's freedom. We're so glad there's forgiveness. We're so glad we're not lost and stuck in the past, but God, you've redeemed that and you call us into a present and a future that is beyond what we could have imagined. We are so grateful to you. If you are here today and you have never responded to the invitation that Jesus makes, the invitation made through his blood shed at the cross from his empty tomb three days later, and I'd encourage you, don't let another moment go by until you respond. And you respond by, A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. Mary understood this deeply, that apart from Jesus, she was lost. B, believe. Believe that what Jesus did in his sinless life, in his sacrificial death, in his supernatural resurrection, believe that what he did can make you right with God. See is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I'm going to believe in what you've done, not in what I can keep trying to do. And in the midst of that, I put my confidence, my trust, my faith in what you've accomplished, recognizing I need you and I want to live my life following your example. You can make that choice. You can come to Jesus' feet today. And it begins with that kind of acknowledgement. Father, this week, would we leave here walking in that incredible gratitude, incredible awe, just so overwhelmed by your goodness and grace over our lives. Would we live extravagantly this week in praise and adoration of who you are? We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.